Morning, everyone. Um, readings from Mark chapter 2, verse 23 to chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiatar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Steve. Just to uh, reassure you all, uh, this will all get a little bit smoother. I'm just sort of um, beg your patience a little bit in terms of uh, us working out how to do things well again. Um, it, it is all a little bit bumpy at the moment, but hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get things back to uh, just a, a more relative calm and everybody understanding how things work, not least myself. Um, so let's talk about, um, let's see, can we get the slides? We're, we're going to see if this works. So the PowerPoint, wonderful. There we go. Let's Let's try. Um, let's talk about snow days. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Um, hands up if you like a good snow day. Okay, some people. Um, you know, when the snow forces the closure of schools and workplaces. Um, as a child, I always just used to hope for at least just one snow day each winter. This, I know it's the middle of June, but I want to talk about snow days, so it's fine. Um, due to the unique and fascinating variables at play in the, in the British weather, which we love talking about. It was virtually impossible to know with any kind of certainty or advance notice either whether A, it would snow, or B, whether there would be enough snow to, to close the schools. So in most winters, there were times when snow was forecast, but then failed to deliver. I'm just going to get a little drink of water, sorry. <laughs> There we go. I just get very emotional when talking about snow days. <laughs> so you get the days when it was forecast, but then 
no snow. And, you know, school stayed open. There was a lack of snow or, the, or snow falling at the wrong time. That was the worst one. And you thought the snow was going to close the school and then and, and it cleared in time. There's nothing worse dragging yourself off to school on a day that had promised to be a snow day. It was just felt cheated. And uh, pre-internet, the authority on school closures was uh, local radio. Chilton FM was my local radio, 97.6, the hot FM, oh yes. And we used to tune in at the first sign of the settling snow. Um, you know, the moment you, you, you open the curtains and, and you see the, the snow blanketing everything and you just waited with bated breath for the list of schools to be read out that would not be open in, on, on, the, on the local radio, desperately hoping that your school would be on the list. And the worst, of course, was when every other school was on that list and was closed apart from yours. That was the worst, when everyone else had a snow day, um, but you didn't. If there are any kids listening this morning, this is before the pandemic. This is before homeschooling and online lessons and Zoom um, were a thing. Schools never used to close like they did in this last year, um, apart from snow days or discovering a World War II unexploded bomb or something. It was very, very rare, um, not like this last year. And in fact, one of the consequences of this last year and uh, teaching sort of moving online, um, maybe that snow days, they're saying, may be a thing of the past, which would be tragic um, for children anyway, maybe not for the adults. I don't know, maybe the adults feel different. Last week, we started to think a little bit about some of the ways the last 18 months has impacted our work and our rest patterns. We saw that in some ways the disruption has brought some welcome changes to lifestyle. 85% of people said that some of the changes in lockdown had been good. But we also talked about something that has increasingly been on the radar in recent weeks, about the way the accelerated shift to working from home and online has led to a kind of a weakening of the boundaries between work and rest. And this is having consequences. And so in this series looking at Jesus's priorities in Mark's gospel, we've come to these two stories, the end of chapter two, start of chapter three, in, in which we see Jesus speaking into this subject of work and rest and human flourishing based on the pattern set out in Genesis 1. And we looked at this concept of Sabbath, a day in each week set aside for rest and enjoying God and his good creation. And we saw the consequences of the religious leaders in Jesus' day misapplying the Sabbath and turning it from something intended to be a blessing uh, into something that had become a curse. And uh, Jesus wasn't happy about that. Um, we, we, we saw the beginnings of that last week. We'll see it again in this second story that we're focusing on today. We did have the same reading, I know, both weeks in a row. Well done if you spotted that. But that's, we're doing the first half last week, the second half today. Just a couple of things to remind you of from last Sunday. We saw that, obviously, an overly restrictive religious approach to Sabbath isn't our cultural problem today, not by a long shot. Um, as a society, we probably could not be more relaxed or careless about the Sabbath or observing that right now. But we kind of have the opposite problem. We've pretty much ceded, given up, um, submitted our right to a reliable, proper time off um, in some ways. Uh, but the result is the same. We miss out on the blessing 
that God intended for us in our patterns of life. And this is a great time, I think, for us to be looking at this stuff, because as we continue you know, to get our vaccines and hopefully gradually come out of lockdown and things become a bit more normal, we ask ourselves, what has become of our lives? Um, what, have become, what has become of our, our patterns of work and rest in this season? Where are we and where is all this heading? So part two of the story we're going to consider, uh, what is this idea of Sabbath really all about? What's it for? What does it mean to Sabbath well? What can we learn from Jesus about that? So that's uh, what we're looking at today. If you've got a Bible with you or you've got a Bible app on your phone, um, please turn to Mark chapter 3. Now something we skipped over last Sunday, when, when the Pharisees where they were coming from in this extreme approach to forbidding anything to be done on a Sabbath day, their zeal for this. Um, so a lot of Old Testament scripture is taken up with God's people getting into trouble for failing to live according to God's law, God's ways. And these laws, which were grounded in a particular time and context, uh, covered a whole range of things, work and rest regulations being one of them. And it was their failure to live up to the law that saw God's people carried off from the land into exile as God had threatened. And by, by Jesus' time, the, the people were back in the land. They'd returned from exile. And what the Pharisees had tried to do was make it harder than ever for people to break the law. By putting kind of extra fences between the boundaries of the law and themselves. So picture, if you like, a nuclear power station. You wouldn't expect the first warning sign, the first locked door to be at the entrance to the reactor. You have layers of security and cautions to stop people, you know, even getting close to the radioactivity. So that's kind of what the Pharisees had done with the law in Jesus' day, which kind of missed the point entirely. Because if you read the law and what God says about it through the prophets, it's about the heart that God really cares, much more than religious observance. And this is central to this message of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. It's a heart thing. It's about understanding God's heart, which is rooted in his gracious desire to bless and heal and set free. You know, that's the heart of the gospel. It's not about us earning our way into God's favour. It's about his grace in Jesus, despite our failure to live to his standards. And so Jesus is coming at this, if you like, from completely the opposite direction to the Pharisees, the religious police of their days. So a clash is inevitable. Jesus enters the synagogue and this man with a shriveled hand is there. He's afflicted, he's burdened, he's not enjoying life in all its fullness. And the religious leaders are there, and Mark says that they are looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Jesus is challenging their authority, so they're out to get him. Verse 3, they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, which was forbidden by the Pharisees. I remember telling Matthew off a couple of years ago. Um, I was probably a little bit more cross than I should have been, um, but he shaped to do something we'll describe that was very naughty. And I said to him, don't you dare. And uh, to his credit, he didn't, he stopped. But afterwards, he developed this habit of saying, don't 
you dare. Um, and an uncanny impression of me um, to anyone who really just did anything that he didn't like, which was, you know, okay at home, slightly less than ideal at the playground when another child wanted to get onto the roundabout. Um, healing on the Sabbath is breaking the law of the religious leaders. So you can picture them looking at Jesus and the man with the shriveled hand and thinking, don't you dare. So Jesus poses the question, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or do evil? To save life or to kill? And the Pharisees remain silent and watch. Jesus dares. He tells the man to stretch out his hand. The man stretches out his hand and and it's healed. It's completely restored. End of story. Almost. Here's an interesting question. Did Jesus heal the man? What do we think? Did Jesus heal the man? Yes. But where's, where's the proof? Technically, all Jesus did is talk to the man. He tells him to stretch out his hand. Now, work isn't permitted on the Sabbath. Talking is permitted on the Sabbath. So stretching out your hand. So it's hard for the Pharisees to prove that Jesus has done any work or indeed healing here unless, of course, he's God. So he's brought life and healing to this man while following the letter of the laws and kind of sticking it to the religious leaders at the same time. Challenging the moral basis of their authority, um, you know, which people don't tend to like now as then, right? No wonder they want to get rid of him. Jesus stands against the oppression of the religious leaders. He pushes back against this culture that's keeping this man trapped. I missed a verse from the story as I read it just now. I don't know if you noticed that. It was Jesus' reaction in this standoff to the religious leaders looking at him saying, don't you dare. Look at verse 5. He looked at them in anger and deeply distressed at their their stubborn hearts. Jesus' reaction was anger and deep distress. Now we know Jesus had emotions, but consider the things Jesus doesn't get angry or distressed about. Ritual impurity, being judged for his friends, personal attacks, people picking up stones to throw at him. None of those things make Jesus angry or deeply distressed. But misusing the Sabbath to oppress people, to make their lives miserable, and Jesus got mad. It was an attitude of holy discontent that just said, this is not okay. Jesus gets mad when the life-giving rhythms of work and rest are abused to oppress people. So hold on to that as we return to our own context. So last week we considered the idea that rest is a spiritual discipline. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's the only spiritual discipline that, that appears in the, in the Ten Commandments. I think we tend not to think of it that way. Rather, we think of rest as a kind of a luxury or somehow something that's a bit self-indulgent. Or else we think of it as a reward that's got to be earned. You know, sort of flog yourself silly for six days, get one free which is to miss the point of Sabbath in the Bible. So in the Bible, Sabbath is previous and it's primary. So God, yes, God creates um, and then he rests. But what was he doing before he created? 
He was resting. God's work came out of a place of rest. Now, that's a very countercultural idea today where having boundaries that limit the place of work in our lives can be considered quite unreasonable by employers or clients or, let's face it, our children. But it's not always imposed on us, is it? Somebody pointed this out to me last Sunday. Yeah, actually, often, this is more about our own choices. And in fact, the truth is, if we are waiting for someone else to establish healthy patterns in our, of work and rest in our lives, it's unlikely to ever happen. We talked a few weeks ago about the concept of margin. We've seen Jesus regularly going out to the wilderness in some of the passages before this to unplug from the world, spend time talking with his father. And we, uh, we talked about the dangers of kind of mobile phones, amongst other things, robbing us of any sense of this margin. You know, I'm going to be entirely honest with you. This is something I preach about. And I, I've, the last week or so, I've been rubbish with it. The news cycle just hooks me in. I end up just, anyway, now I have a phone that tells me how, how much screen time I've been watching as well. Sabbath, really, when it comes down to it, is about having regular extended times of margin, a time to lay stuff down, the work, the emails, the WhatsApps, the obligations, the news cycle, whatever it is, the demands made by others, and for us to be refreshed and healed and draw close to our loving Father to receive from him. Of course, we mustn't go too far the other way again. You know, go get overly religious about the Sabbath again. But it comes down to Jesus' statement last week. The Sabbath was made for us, for people. It's not about restricting our freedom. It's about protecting our freedom. And as much as Sabbath needs to come out, as a, uh, out of a place of kind of resistance to the demands made on us, as we see in today's story, Sabbath is as much about what we do as what we don't. The Sabbath is for healing. Let me throw out a question to you, uh, a moment for you to consider. If you're sitting next to someone, you could have a brief chat. If, you're, um, uh, if you want to just uh, have a moment's peace, you can do that too. Here's the question. If you could have 24 hours with zero obligation, no to-dos to complete, let's go um, further, let's say no mobile phone, what would you do with that day? A free day, a snow day, if you like. What would you do? Just sit and chew that over for a moment. 24 hours of no obligation. I posed a couple of questions, um, which basically amounted to, in the, in, in the disruption to your life during this pandemic, would you say that your rhythms of work, uh, life, work, rest, uh, are more life-giving or less life-giving than they were before the pandemic started? Because if things have moved in a bad direction over this last year, we need to take our lead from Jesus, who got angry and distressed on behalf of the man who was suffering. So the first thing is to ask ourselves, you know, whether there is a problem um, with this, and if there is, to name it, and then see it from Jesus's response to this man, that it matters. And then, of course, we have to decide what can we do about it. 
few years uh, ago, a few friends of mine decided, we, we decided we wanted to be a little bit more intentional about what our rhythms of work and rest and Sabbath look like. So it's something that we've been journeying on together um, for a while now, that others of you may have done this. And I just wonder if you just permit me to share a little bit about some of the, 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 the rhythm and patterns that we have established as a family that have emerged. Um, not because we've aced this in any way, um, but because sometimes it could be helpful to have some concrete examples. That's how I get thinking often if someone else shares how they're doing things. So the first thing to say is obviously, um, you know, for obvious reasons, Sunday doesn't work for us as a family for Sabbath. Um, or as you know, you know, I'm a vicar, which means I only work on Sundays. So, um, you know, it doesn't work. Um, what we found is that we um, establish a rhythm working on, sorry, we've established a rhythm of Sabbath working on the, the kind of the timing of the original Jewish Sabbath, which begins on Friday uh, evening and goes through to Saturday evening. That actually works quite well for us. So first, there's preparation. We know in Jesus' day, the Friday leading up to the Sabbath was known as the day of preparation. And the idea was that all jobs and obligations were fulfilled before the Sabbath started. So this means work requirements, but it also means trying to get all the business of life sorted too. In a sense, you know, the work that we don't get paid for. Household stuff, admin, finances, shopping, if that's something that you don't enjoy. And the key really is that we try to clear the Sabbath for only things that are life-giving, that we enjoy. So if you like gardening, that's great. Do gardening on your Sabbath. But if you don't like gardening, don't do it on your Sabbath. That's the kind of general principle. So the day of preparation is a way, in a sense, of clearing the decks as much as possible for anything else. So first thing is preparation. For us, um, in a good week, Sabbath starts with lunch on a Friday. If I can get done by then, sometimes Jess and I will go out and have lunch. We've done that a couple of times while someone else has looked after Joshua, which is great. And then at 3 p.m., that's where it really starts. I pick up the boys from school. So those of you at the Blue School who, who get, have got used to seeing me on Friday afternoon, that's what's going on. This is the start. And we would normally go swimming. Um, that's been a little bit harder recently um, or go to a pastry or an ice cream shop or something so food you'll see there's a big theme food is a very big part of our sabbath and then we go home and we relax everything to do with school or work goes away for 24 hours um, often the grandparents chip in um, do a little bit of reading over zoom to the boys which is great gives jess and i a little bit of a chance to kick back have a cuppa and just start to breathe Dinner is fish and chips. If it's the end of term, we get the fish and chips from the fish and chip shop. So always a priority in a new place is find a good fish and chip shop. We've done that now. Um, if it's the, uh, what else? Yes, in theory, our, in theory, our phones go away. Now, hashtag still working on this. Um, but I'm determined to nail it. I realize we've got a couple of years probably before our children get phones of their own. So if we're going to hold any principles on use of mobile phones, we kind of need to do it now, if that makes sense. We light a Sabbath candle, and over dinner, we each answer three questions. So the first one is one thing that we are thankful for from this week. One thing is one thing that's, sorry, one thing that's been hard from this week. And one thing that we need from our Sabbath or are looking forward to in our Sabbath. Um, if we have guests, then they get to answer these questions too. And uh, the boys' answer to question three is nearly always to do with food. 
Friday evening, we enlist uh, the help of audiobooks to give us a kind of calmer and quieter bedtime. Jess and I settle down, maybe watch something, read, listen to some music, maybe pray a little, enjoy a glass of wine or a beer. It's just the best night of the week. It's the, the night of the week with no work the following morning. Saturday morning is boys' breakfast. Um, Jess gets a breather. This is a tradition that has grown. Um, While the boys watch TV, while I prepare a monster breakfast. So during the rest of the week, it's just kind of porridge and toast. But on Saturday morning, we absolutely go to town on this one. And uh, it's the full works. It's probably the moment in our household where all feels well with the world most in the whole week is when everyone has just eaten that breakfast. And while preparing that, while clearing up, I listened to a, a podcast of someone who can, you know, actually preach really well um, to try and get inspiration and to feed my own soul. And then we all get up and we go and do something, you know, swim, cycle, pot around, queue or Richmond Park is recent things we've done. Um, for the, again, for the sake of transparency, this point of transition, of going out, is usually the most difficult part of the day. In fact, sometimes it's the most, most difficult part of the entire week. We're kind of working on that. If you've got any good ideas for handling those sorts of transitions, let me know. More special food for lunch. Fresh bread, lurpat, lots of pork products. The boys love pork pie and the rest of it. And then Jess, um, after lunch, kind of occupies the boys while I relax um, with a cuppa or read, listen to some sport, or sometimes just fall asleep. That's part of Sabbath, just fall asleep. And uh, the afternoon plays out. You might go out to a playground or something like that. And, that, and gradually we just begin to draw that Sabbath time to a close. Um, Jess feeds the boys, gets them to bed. I begin to get my head back into the game for um, Sunday. Usually there's a sermon that needs some attention. Um, and Saturday evening, Jess and I just eat something nice and In theory, we try and stop and give thanks for that time, for that time of 24 hours, that Sabbath. Maybe worship a bit around the piano. So that's Sabbath with the sellers, and I've probably painted a more idyllic picture of it than the reality, but being totally honest, you know, some of those difficult moments of the week, most difficult moments of the week happen during that 24 hours. I think it's just the stress of the week coming out. That's partly what's going on there. But the truth is, it's a time that we look forward to. It's a time when we reconnect with each other and with God, which is what Sabbath is really all about. It's a time of healing. And all sorts of other ideas out there, probably some of you guys have got them. Um, some people have a box of special Sabbath toys that just come out on the Sabbath, but it's extra fun, or books or special TV programs. Um, I mentioned some people I know just switch off their mobile phones for the whole 24 hours. I'm not quite there, but maybe one day. Um, giving the news cycle a miss certainly might be helpful. And I share this not because this is what your Sabbath should look like, but sometimes it's just, like I say, helpful to have some practical examples to work from. Most of these practices are are things that we have stolen from other people or got from other people. There's a large and growing canon of books and teachings on this subject. And if I, I wanted to give you any advice, if this is something that interests you, if this is something you want to look at, two pieces of advice I'd give. One is journey with some other people on this. Find someone else who um, wants to go on a journey of thinking about your rhythms of work and rest so that you can do that together, keep each other a little bit accountable. Um, Or another family, if you're a family, find another family and, and then share your experiences of this. The other thing is just to say, don't feel you've got to like set out a whole schedule like I've just listed. Just start with one thing. Just pick one thing that you want to do, something you want to do for your Sabbath or something you want to stop doing for your Sabbath and then build from there.
I'll, I'll f finish with a couple of quotes. Um, theologian Walter Brueggemann, um, John, why don't you just come up? The band can sort of come up at this point if you want. Uh, um, Walter Brueggemann says, those who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. That this one day makes a difference to the whole week. That's something just to reflect on. Peter Scazzaro says this. At its best, Sabbath is like receiving the gift of a snow day every week. Stores closed, roads impassable. Suddenly you have the gift of a day to do whatever you want. You have no obligations, pressures or responsibilities. You have permission to play, to be with friends, to take a nap, to read a good book. Few of us would give ourselves a no obligation day very often. God gives you one every seventh day. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for people. It was made for healing. It was made for you. So here's to a snow day every week. Why don't we stand and pray?